On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jared Oliphant about Reformed theology and philosophy and social ontology. So we cover all sorts of topics, as you can tell. We cover things like what is ontology? What is metaphysics? What is social ontology? What is conceptual engineering? And how does that have anything to do with philosophy of language? What are types and tokens and ontology of words? We also talk about things like just generally philosophy. How does that relate to Reformed theology? Why do Reformed theologians, have, for some reason, have a dim view of, of philosophy and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast and really online center that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And the way we think about that is trying to, I guess, put together what we would call an intellectual culture uh, that prizes certain virtues. So there's a lot of virtues that we should prize as Christians, uh, as serious thinkers, but a couple of them that we've put together are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And yeah, we like C's because we're Baptists, so we put them all together and made it real nice and tidy. But really, the the main idea behind that is we think that serious thinking is, yes, uh, we should be very careful and serious about arguments, and we should be uh, understanding all the complexities that go on with it and not leaving anything out, not doing sort of uh, a halfway job where we're just kind of, I don't know, just we're, we're not being very careful with all the nuances that go on, but we also want to be... Uh, charitable and kind in how we do it. So we want to have this just two mode, serious about virtue, serious about the actual arguments that are, that are in play. And I think you'll see that in our interviews and all the material that we do. We're not great at it all the time. Sometimes we fail, um, but we're trying to at least promote this and encourage this. Now, today for our interview, I am thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Jared Oliphant. So I imagine some of you guys know who, who Jared is. Maybe you know who, you've heard of his dad. You've read some of his books before, his like covenantal apologetics, those other sort of things. If, if you're into those sort of areas, I, I know I, when I first started getting into philosophy, started reading, uh, I guess Jared's dad, Scott's, uh, work, uh, reading his books. So I, I have benefited from those and learned from them. And I'm excited to talk to Jared today about just reformed theology, philosophy, uh, and some of his work in social ontology and, and related uh, areas. So this is going to be a lot of fun. So before we get started, Jared, for those who don't know you, give me just a little bit of background. What have you been up to the last couple of years? And then what made you particularly interested in the subject area of your dis- dissertation, you know, this conceptual engineering, social ontology sort of stuff. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Um, and I just want to start out saying you guys are doing great work here. Love the podcast, what you're doing at London Lyceum. The the print stuff is great. The podcast is great. So the world's a better place because this exists. Um, but yeah, I'll start out. Uh, what have I been doing the last couple of years? Well, I've been in like the PhD cave. Uh, so I just finished up the PhD uh, more or less like in August. Um, well, I, I should say like two months ago. And um, before that, so I'll give a brief bio, and if you want to, you know, follow up on anything, that's fine. Um, went to small liberal arts uh, Christian college, Gordon College um, near Boston uh, for my undergrad. I majored in philosophy there, 
and then um, went straight to Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia for my master's. Um, and it was like, you know, I graduated uh, in May, and then two months later, I was in summer Greek there at Westminster, which I don't advise, actually. It's, it's better to take a little time off if you, if you can do it. Um, so I got my MIR there at Westminster, uh, and then I was sort of burned out on academia after that. I thought I was going to do a PC in philosophy right after that um, and then change courses. I just, I went into just the non-academic academic, uh, job market for a little bit and then um, and then came back to Westminster. Actually, I was director of admissions there for a few years and did some external recruiting and um, started the THM there. And when I started the THM at Westminster, I was doing it from a distance. And um, for one of my courses, I actually took a course at UNC Chapel Hill uh, on skepticism. And uh, that got me back into the philosophical world. And um, one of the professors there sort of encouraged me to pursue it after taking the course. And so that's what I did. And long story short, I went to, um, ended up going to A&M, Texas A&M University, Gigum. Uh, and so for five years, I was, uh, I was doing the PhD work there. Like I said, just finished a couple months ago. Yeah. Very awesome. I've seen the photos that you post. I'm like, wow, that's a beautiful campus. Um, I don't think I've, you know, I've been in the airports in Texas, but I've never like actually walked around and done anything in Texas. So everything I've seen and know is secondhand from people like you who post photos and different things on Twitter. Um, so I, I mean, there's some stuff I want to talk about reformed theology and philosophy, but we'll hold that, uh, for getting into the meat of the philosophy. Cause I know we've got a bunch of nerds who like to learn about the metaphysics, epistemology, all that fun stuff. So we'll start with social ontology. Maybe give me that baseline definition. You're teaching undergraduate students. What is, what do you, how do you explain what is social ontology? Yeah, good. Thanks. Um, the, let's see, how do you explain it? Well, I should say, uh, you know, I'm on the analytic side. So my dissertation was heavily, um, analytic in, uh, metaphysics, a little bit of philosophy, language, object theory, that sort of thing. Um, social ontology. Well, first, uh, yeah, what's ontology? Um, the way that I think about ontology, so I'm often asked, uh, what's the difference between ontology and metaphysics? Like, how do we use those words? And very roughly, I like to say, um, ontology is sort of taking an inventory of like what exists and maybe what doesn't, depending on how you slice that up. Um, So if you line up all the objects that are out there, uh, what's in that inventory? Um, And then metaphysics is sort of like, how do you carve that up? What are the properties involved? What are those things like? yeah, how do you slice up the world, that sort of thing. So it's often uh, also called social metaphysics because really all the, well, not all the, but uh, many of the questions that we ask in, um, let's say, broadly metaphysical studies are then asked of uh, social objects. So where does the social come come from? The idea, the the story is something like, well, we have, you know, this uh, long-standing field of metaphysics, and that studies objects and talks about properties and that sort of things. And we can, um, uh, we can, you know, we can ask those classical questions of substance and um, and those sorts of things. And then uh, you you look at objects uh, that may have different characteristics, like social groups of people. And, um, and even artifacts like tables. And so like, what's the difference between, 
um, the table that I see there and then just uh, like a hunk of wood. Or you can talk about, you know, the, the clay and the statue, right? The statue being an artifact and the, the clay maybe being, some might say, like a more natural object. And you're going to notice that a lot of the features that um, we talk about for social groups and artifacts and those sorts of things, they seem very mind-dependent. But they also seem real at the same time, at least some people think so. So what is going on with these so-called social objects? And how do how do we delineate uh, social objects from, let's say, non-social objects? And is that even possible? So um, social ontology asks those sorts of questions. And it's a huge field. It's sort of, I mean, it, officially, more or less, it's, it's uh, a newer field, you know, within the last like 20, 25 years, something like that. Um, but uh, it's really being intentional on uh, on those sorts of questions of what separates social from non-social objects or entities, and then ask bringing um, well better uh, seeing what the relationship is between you know classical metaphysics broadly speaking, and then um, you know this this new newish field that's asking different questions about um, entities like institutions and money. Um, and those sorts of things. So yeah, there's a there's a very rough characteristic. Yeah, I was going to ask about if the social and the social ontology has anything to do with sort of like the groups that you were talking about, because that seems to be quite popular and important today, thinking through uh, what is it, it, like our institutions, actual entities, or do they reduce yeah. to their individuals sort of thing? So I, yeah, I think this is a fun area. So you've done some particular work in conceptual engineering within the philosophy of language. Now, conceptual engineering, I imagine, I mean, we probably have some people who are like engineers who listen to the podcast, like actual like computer engineers and electrical engineers. I think I just got somebody who wanted to join our like private Slack channel or whatever, who's, I think he was like in some sort of electrical engineer or something. I can't remember. Um, how, what do we mean when we're talking about conceptual engineering? Yeah. Um, you know, with all the philosophy, it depends on who you ask. But yeah, let's characterize it uh, generally. Um, the again, this is a sort of newish field. Um, conceptual engineering. Uh, what it does is it tries to. So, as a metaphysician, I was drawn to it uh, because I liked the way that it. Uh, well, I should say it's it's somewhat metaphysical. So it says, okay whatever concept that we're talking about, let's see if we can describe it and see if that's the best um, way to describe the concept that we're talking about, or if there are multiple ways and, um, and evaluate it in that sense. And so conceptual engineering and then conceptual ethics are sort of two sides of the same coin. Some people have a preference uh, for, um, you know, naming the field conceptual engineering. And then some people have a preference for naming it conceptual ethics. Um, but basically it looks at a concept like, um, well, I mean, a very popular one are like gender terms, like man and woman. Um, and so that's not the reason that I got into the field and I have a lot to say about that. Um, but if you look at, let's just say the concept of gender, right? If we, if we take a look at the concept of gender, 
we could describe that in a lot of different ways, um, philosophically speaking. And then there's the question of, well, given all these ways that we can describe this concept, are there better or worse ways? Is there a way that it's defective um, in this sense, and then maybe a little bit better in this sense? And so in my dissertation, I actually point out that this metaphilosophical approach is kind of used everywhere. Um, I mean, analytic philosophy oftentimes gets described as just sort of conceptual analysis as, uh, you know, for different topics. Um, and so one of the, uh, one of the concepts that I talk about is uh, the epistemological concept of evidence. Um, and there's a, a forthcoming book by Rafe Wedgwood out at USC um, on epistemology. And one of his chapters is called Against Evidence. And he doesn't actually explicitly talk about conceptual engineering, but he more or less uh, takes a look at the concept of evidence and says, you know what, in a technical sense, I don't really think it works. I think it's defective. And in the popular sense, I think it's defective as well. Um, so I just make the point there that we're sort of doing conceptual engineering, conceptual ethics all the time. If we're looking at uh, some term and trying to evaluate the different senses that it has. That's why it's involved in philosophy of language is because it is very language based. So you can like fix the term and then mess with the concepts or you can think of a concept and then come up with different uh, terms for it. So again, very, very rough sketch. Yeah. So I, I think this is really interesting and I want to follow up a, a little bit more pragmatic question on these sort of concepts that we're talking about here at this point, I mean, we've got a lot of pastors who listen. They might be sitting here thinking, okay, conceptual engineering, social ontology, sounds interesting, but what's my cash value for me as a pastor? Would you have any, I guess, thoughts on that up front just to say, hey, don't don't tune out. I want uh, pay attention to these conversations. While they are complex, they are really important for you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, because I realize in the description, it just sounds dry and sort of out there if you're not actually already interested in it. Um, well, I'd say uh, one of the um, pitches, more or less, that I would give to social the, the discipline of social ontology and you know the field of conceptual engineering, conceptual ethics, is that it just takes a look at uh, a lot of the objects that we talk about and think about all the time anyway, and really dives in and thinks deeply about it. So um, here's here's maybe one entry point in, into uh, the field for someone who is more focused on like pastoral work and slight interest in, in theology or philosophy. But I've often thought that um, if you take, you know, an example of an object like the church, Right, let's talk about visible church and visible church. There's a sense in which that's a social group. And so we can talk about uh, the conditions for what counts as a member of the invisible church. That's a really philosophical, nerdy, kind of stale way of putting it, but it does use terms and ideas from that field uh, in and apply them to something that maybe you're already thinking about, um, like, you know, church membership, something like that. Um, and so if we're talking about this uh, social group like the church, we can use the questions and some of the insights from that field and go, yeah, okay, uh, how am I thinking about this maybe a little more precisely and just give focus and attention to... So for example, part of the reason um, I was... Uh, interested in social ontology is the work of Brian Epstein. And he makes this distinction. He uses uh, 
uses grounding, right? So one fact is grounded by another. Um, it's uh, in, and there's a dependence relation there. So if we talk about something like um, church membership, maybe we can ask this. Um, like I said, what are the conditions for uh, someone to count as a member of a church? That's one question that we could ask, right? There's a group, there's a social group, and then there are conditions. And then he makes a distinction, right? So so uh, Jordan is a member of a church. That fact is grounded by these other facts that we could talk about. And then he makes a distinction. That explains one thing. Then we have this other uh, question that we could ask, which is, um, well, why are those the conditions? Uh, what if we had these other conditions? And then we're often running about, you know, debates on what actually are the conditions for church membership. And that's going to have like a different explanatory output. And so that distinction itself just causes your attention to focus on one set of questions that has these sorts of explanations. And then these others, these other questions that have different explanations. So again, it's just making a distinction um, so that we can talk about this with a little bit more precision. One sort of hack example. That's good. Helpful. So uh, a follow-up on sort of conceptual engineering uh, terms that I see oftentimes thrown around that I still have to go remind myself if I'm getting the right, each of them right, types and tokens. Um, those are pretty relevant terms that you see, especially in philosophy. I mean, pretty sure there, there are books on just types and tokens just themselves. So what are these and why would you suggest we should have an ontology of words? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Um, first things first. So, uh, yeah, one of the best, uh, books on types and tokens is by Linda Wetzel. And I think it's just called types and tokens. And the subtitle is something like on abstract objects or defensive abstract objects. Um, so, uh, it, it's sort of easy to describe what types and tokens are. So there's a type, let's say a grizzly bear, and then there are tokens, uh, which are the you know brown things that you see running around in various forests or whatever? Um, and so uh, you know there's a there's a type cup, and then there's this cup that's in front of me. Um, why is that uh, significant? Well, uh, I don't make um, a ton, I don't I don't talk a ton about types and tokens in like my dissertation, um, but. I incorporate it into this uh, sort of suite of abstract objects that involves concepts, properties, types, kinds. I see all those as these like universals that then have instances. And so with concepts, we have instances, right? So there's the concept of grizzly bear. And then there are like instances of grizzly bear, like I said, um, there are properties and maybe they're universals, maybe they're tropes, but, um, they're universals, let's say, and then they have, uh, instances like there's the, the property of like being a cup. And then there's the instance over here. And so, um, that's really, you know, types are, uh, the kinds of things that function a lot like properties in that they, they function like universals. Why is that important? The, it was important for me, uh, in looking at, uh, the metaphysics of words, because 
the standard um, account of the metaphysics of words was that there are types of words and then there are tokens of words. And so you use that sort of configuration to go, okay, then how do we figure out like word individuation? If some thing over here counts as this word and not that word. Um, okay. And the reason I was interested in this very niche, uh, you know, field of study was because uh, I was initially interested in the topic of abstract objects. Um, and really, very first, I, I thought I was going to do work on God and abstract objects uh, coming into A&M in the PhD program. And then I started looking at the topic of abstract objects, and I thought, oh, I barely know anything on this topic. I really need to like get into it. This is so huge. I, I don't know what I'm doing. So, all right, so I'm going to focus on abstract objects first. And then when I started reading the literature, there was this... Um, very roughly uh, objection to the existence of abstract objects, which said something like, well, re reference to abstract object, this is sort of just the language that we use. This is kind of just how we speak. We have to refer to these things and they don't, they're not really out there. Um, it's just what we say. And then I thought, okay. Um, but when we're talking about language, like what is language? And that's really how I got onto the path of looking at language itself and seeing what the metaphysical properties are in relation to other objects like rocks and trees and whatever else are sort of, you know, natural and uh, fall into whatever category. And then that's how I got into social ontology. So very briefly, um, if we say that like uh, this object over here is the same word as this other object, oftentimes there is uh, pretty much no resemblance relation, right? So if there is a transcript of what I'm saying right now, the objects that count as like this transcript are maybe these pixels on a screen. Well, that has almost nothing in common with the sound waves that are coming out of my mouth. But clearly, when I say the word like mouth, um, the, the pixels that you see and the sound waves that are coming out uh, we want to say are the same word, right? This is the whole idea of like even translation across languages. So that's sort of a mysterious thing that doesn't exactly happen when you look at other resemblance relations between objects that count as um, members of the same kind, let's say. So I'll stop there. And well, you, you had like 20 things that I want to chase the rabbits on. Uh, but I, I want to make sure We'll come back to some of that stuff if if we have time because I do I am very interested. You you did work at Westminster. You have a degree from there. Um, you you worked at RTS for a period of time. Then you go to A and M and you do a philosophy program in a secular university department. What would you say are some sort of dispositions or virtues that you developed there at that program that you'd say, hey, I think some theologians, some seminaries could really use some emphasis in these things and start focusing on them too. Are there things that are lacking or just aren't emphasized in theological circles that should be? Yeah. Um, well, I certainly don't hold myself up as like an example of that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. You know, I, I thought about this a lot. I don't know. Can you like, I'll ask you, what are a couple like examples that did, I think dispositions is the right word actually. Um, yeah. But like, what are a couple examples that you might have in mind? And then maybe I can elaborate a little. 
Yeah. So I guess for me, as being in a secular philosophy program, and yet also still serving at a seminary and, and assisting them in different ways, I do think there is, at least in analytic philosophy, there is an attention to the actual arguments that are in play and nothing's off limits from being questioned. So it's not just because, well, yeah, you get the right conclusion, therefore no big deal. No, I want to look through every step of your argument to make sure that it is accurate, that you're accurately representing your opponents, that there isn't any mistakes in any aspect of it, where I feel like in the theological circles that I, I've been in, there's a little bit of a, a laxness where, well, as long as you get the right conclusion, you know, you're, you're doing ultimately the good work. So who cares if you've made some mistakes here? Who cares if you've misrepresented some people here? Like it, it's not as big of a deal. Whereas an analytic philosophy, it's like no holds barred for me. Like I want you to be as accurate as possible. So for me, that sort of disposition of caring about every particular aspect is important. That seems like, Hey, we should emphasize this, but also uh, there seems to be dispositions of, I really don't care what you think or believe. We want to deal with the arguments and we want to treat each other with respect. Now, I don't want to say every theological circle doesn't do that. There are lots that are very good at that. But there are some that I've been in where unless you're in the elite club, um, then then you don't get treated with the same level of, of attention and respect and care for people's arguments. So I think those are sort of things that I've witnessed where we can go at each other and be rigorous, like, tell you, look, that argument's terrible. And people don't take like personal offense to it because they know I just genuinely want you to make the best argument that you can so we can go hang out afterwards and have a good time and be friends still. So in my mind, those are examples that I've experienced anyway. So I don't know if you've experienced any uh, things similar. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of rather, yeah, I, I will have to hold myself back, I think, um, on this particular question. But so many things came to mind as you started speaking. So number one, amen to all of that. Absolutely. Um, as far as not taking criticism personally, you know, I have, I had to learn that in the dissertation writing process and then the defense. Um, I mean, I, I sort of mistakenly, it turned out okay, but mistakenly chose um, the most difficult people in the, uh, well, no, the philosophers with the highest standards uh, to be on my committee. And so I would, you know, write some things and then, you know, say, hey, check this out. Does this work for this chapter? And then just get murdered and just, (laughs) and so... If you do that over and over and over and over and over, um, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of times, you learn because you have to, otherwise you're going to quit out of the program, um, not to take those sorts of things personally. It's just you're part of a project of uh, personal training for sure, and then trying to actually make a decent contribution to the subject area that you're talking about. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, as far as... Yeah, I I say that sort of thing all the time that, um, look, an argument is not just a conclusion. It's also a set of premises. And it's not that you have to like formalize everything. That's really not, um, it's really hard to do actually most of the time. Um, And uh, a lot of times there's a lot of disputes on how you formalize it. So maybe it can help in some cases, but not every case. But um, an argument includes premises and a conclusion, right? So if like you can have uh, a lot of really tight 
premises that lead to a conclusion that I disagree with, where I go, okay, that's a great argument. And then at the same time, you can have a horrendous argument that leads to a conclusion that I do disagree with. And I I have to go, look, that's not the way that you argue that sort of thing. And so often in theological circles, um, I'd say in every circle, but my attention right now is on uh, theological circles. Uh, people are allowed to get away with it just because the conclusion lines up with what they agree with. And I think that is something that just runs rampant through theological circles, unfortunately. So, I mean, what's, what's at least part of the solution? Um, yeah, you know, I taught logic for a few years at a and um, for a couple years being a TA, and then I taught my own logic courses. And Part of what I, part of the pitch there is um, you just learn uh, how good arguments work and how bad arguments work. And you're able to have those logic glasses on when you see someone argue for something, whether it's in the context of social media or you're reading a paper or you're constructing your own. Um, And it doesn't take a ton of work to get those basics down. You don't have to be this um logic uh you know expert that can just logic chop everything and formalize everything modally and quantificationally so um a basic understand i mean what is logic logic is basically just the study of consequence so you take a sentence or no sentences you take another one and like does the one follow from the other or does the conclusion follow from no premises one premise set of premises that's really what it's talking about it's like does this follow from that that's really the study of logic it's it's language um, and so getting a little bit of, of training there, I think, helps. And the other thing that I say is there's sort of a broad sense of logic and a narrow sense of, of logic. I think so I'm, I'm working on this on my own and maybe at some point I'm, I'll be ready to talk about it. But the broad sense of logic is this field of study that focuses on like fallacies and critical thinking, which is fine. Um, that is, I think, what a ton of people in the theological circles take logic to be. In, in my view, again, it's fine to study those sorts of things. That's just sort of philosophy. So philosophy, if it, I mean, it's, it's a huge field, but one of the things that it does very well and focuses on is, um, you know, how well you're arguing a point it does other things as well, but that's, that's one of the basics. And then there's a narrow view of logic, which is the study of formal logic, mostly like formal deductive logic, um, and actually, a, you know, huge field formal inductive logic as well. It's used a ton in epistemology. So anyway, I'm on a rabbit trail. I'll stop there, but uh, that's that's a first go at uh, a lot of the things that you said. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned how you you pick some of the people with the highest standards. I remember being a little bit shocked. Uh, when I started my THM in philosophy, I studied with Greg Welty, and cool. the amount of comments I got from him versus what I had been accustomed to from different people was a, like shocking level of difference. Yeah. So just the the amount of feedback, and at first I did take it personally. I was like, "Wow, I like <laughs> what have I done wrong? Am I completely yeah. just a, a dunce?" And then I realized, no, he just he really cares about every aspect of what you're doing, and he wants to make sure that you are you are. Everything matters. So I have found people who give voluminous feedback to be far more common in philosophical areas than in theological areas. Not saying you can't, there aren't people who do that well in theological areas, but that's something that I think 
It's just more the standard and the expectation when you get into philosophical areas. Even in you know just working sessions and conferences, people are just much more willing to ask very difficult questions about the stuff that you presented and not just assume anything. So uh, another related question that I, I'd be interested in hearing you uh, talk about are, what are some areas in philosophy, maybe it's related to social ontology or something else, that you think theologians, you should dedicate some serious time to learning about this as a subject matter in and of itself. Uh, Maybe pastors too, what are some areas in philosophy that you think they should spend some time thinking about and researching? Out of their busy schedules, they say, yes, I need to spend some time thinking about this actual philosophical discipline. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think well, let's see, two responses. One, I think I can pretty confidently say this builds on what we were talking about before, but if um pastor well, let's say this. This is this is a better this is a better way to say it. Um I'll answer that question with another question. I would ask, you know, any individual pastor who has that question, like, what are the things that you already use? What are the philosophical ideas that you're already using? Um, and in a, in a general level, uh, I would say there's an answer sort of for everybody, which is again, like the study of logic. Like if you want to, uh, sharpen a few of your, um, skills in the way that, uh, maybe you're making arguments or convincing people of something, um, then, just again, a very basic fundamental understanding of logical inference might help in some ways. Uh, but then on, on a more um, non-technical level, um, you know, I, because when you say pastors, I have just 30 different types of pastors in mind. So I don't know if I have like a, a program that can be um, one size fits all. Uh, and I'm also, I should also say, I don't know if your listeners know that, but like I'm coming from a Presbyterian context. Um, so it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, I don't, I, I can't really articulate the differences right now. Maybe you would be better at, at that sort of thing, but yeah, I'm hesitating because what I want to say is like, look, if you're talking about, um, you know, the way the world is objects, that sort of thing, the metaphysics, hey, take just like a little glance at the types of questions and topics that come up within metaphysics broadly, again, at the mo- at the most basic level. Um, so familiarizing yourself, so that's one example. And then I can go on and on about like ethics and epistemology and philosophy of language. I will say here, maybe this is something that, that we want to talk about. Um, pastors, theologians tend to be much more familiar with a couple people from ancient philosophy and maybe a couple people from medieval philosophy and maybe a couple people from uh, the modern era, um, historically speaking. And so they tend to have at least some familiarity with a few figures within history of philosophy. And I think sometimes... Uh, when you haven't been exposed to the gargantuan field, which is philosophy, you're going to see a familiarity with those big names in the area of history of philosophy as 
comprising maybe a bigger percentage of the field of philosophy as a whole than is actually the case. Um, and so maybe one suggestion would be, look, read all the history of philosophy that you want. Um, there's no bar to it. Great. But it might be helpful to also read some contemporary studies on a topic that you're interested in and see whether whatever you're looking at in terms of resources is helpful for the sorts of high-level, high-concept questions um, that you're asking that might help you in in application. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, so you need to know more than just Kant or Hume to understand yeah. what's going on with the with the historical context. But also, I mean, I think to your point, um, social ontology that you've been talking about, I mean, I think all the time pastors want resources on thinking about things like gender that fit under that uh, and how, how to deal with it. And my recommendation personally, you can tell me if you think this is bad, uh, is stop reading the the 10th book that's the exact same thing that just quotes the Bible and then says exactly what the Bible says. That's great. I'm glad that it's there. But instead of reading a 10th book that says the exact same thing, pick up something that's more difficult, that's in the social ontology realm, thinking about concepts of gender, even the stuff that you would radically disagree with, because that helps you understand uh, the people in your congregation, where they're coming from, what they're learning, how they're thinking about questions of gender, questions related to it. And I think that will ultimately help you minister better and more effectively to know all the concepts and how they're being used in the different areas rather than reading the exact same book for the 10th time. But that's, that's me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think that's exactly right. I think there is um, this, there's this dual thing that I haven't put my finger on, which is one, um, there are, there's a good number of pastors and theologians who uh, want to engage philosophy for various reasons, um, figures in philosophy topics, um, because it's obvious that there's a value there. They just see it immediately. They're going, okay, this is useful. Um, and then at the same time, there's this sort of um, fear that I don't know what, maybe a little too much or the wrong thing is going to. And, I, and a lot of times, it's a it's a good fear, it's a healthy fear. Um, but that you know, the wrong thing or a little bit too much is going to um, change your thinking on something, or I don't know, influence you in a way that maybe you don't want, something like that. Um, and so I want to say, look, if you're a pastor or a theologian re- wrestling with that sort of issue, um, what you do is not necessarily going to be the prescription for like your congregants. And so I would just, I, I wouldn't say, hey, um, whatever you're reading, you need to pass along to whoever is in your congregation. Um, but it's okay for you to pick up, like you said, um, some things on, let's say, gender that like you just radically disagree with. And, and it's obvious going into it that you're going to do it. Passing that along to like a, a congregant, um, somebody in your church who doesn't have like um, as much equipment to handle uh, the, those kinds of things and maybe influence more uh, than you. Hopefully you have a, a, you know, a, a sturdy ground um, as you're reading those sorts of things. But you're right. Um, going to the same well, uh, which is, and, and I should say, I don't know the theological works on, you know, something like the gender issue. I'm sure there are things that just want to, that there are books and, and articles that just want to, um, you know, line up some Bible verses. And then there are other, so I don't know, should it? Yeah. So there's those kinds of books. And then, then there are those 
kinds of books that, all right. Yeah. You know, Truman's book, uh, I know, uh, at Lyceum you all did, or someone did a review on that. I forget. Was it you? It was not me. It was Felipe Dovale. Okay. Yeah. And I, I thought, um, I thought it was just so well done. So there is a, an appreciation for some of the things that are said there. Um, but there is a real, uh, critical look at what that book is trying to do and some of the ideas that are employed there. And it is, it's pretty clear that the author doesn't have that much training in, um, philosophy generally, but the average person picking up that book, um, whether that's a a member of a congregation or a pastor doesn't know that. And so those sorts of books are very easy to write and get away with, uh, because the audience just is not going to pick up on a lot of the deficiencies, um, that are going on there. So it's on me. Like what are the great, uh, theological works on, on an issue like that? I actually don't know. I'm working on something myself. Um, that's a, a long way away. Uh, but I'm beginning to do some work on it. Um, but uh, anyway, I'm, I'm sort of, again, like down a road here and I don't know how to get out of it, but um, I wish there were more resources <laughs> on it. Uh, I wish there were a lot more resources on it. It's, it's sort of blindsided uh, the church in the last 10, 15 mm-hmm. something years. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that some people just are going, wait, 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 I, I'm just not catching up. What is going on here? Um, not a lot of people have been uh, trained in the very, very high level philosophical upstream issues that then leak into culture. And so that's, that's part of where I actually want to work. So doing the work in mm. social ontology and conceptual engineering, again, gender and race are huge topics there. Um, people often get into these philosophical topics for the very reason that they want to figure out what's going on with gender, what's going on with race. And um, I should say at the at the absolute, I mean, as clear as I can say, I have a biblical, absolutely hardcore biblical view of biological sex and gender. And so one of the sure. things that I'm working on is going, I'm, I'm aware of all these metaphilosophical issues going on. And now, and how can I take those sorts of questions and issues and apply them well based on the conviction convictions that I have. But that's a very, very long way away. I'm just starting yeah. to to work on that sort of thing. Well, I'll look forward to the finished product. Uh, <laughs> one one other question that I have for you is it seems to me when I look at the landscape, and maybe this is just contemporary landscape, but so it may it very well could be different in times past, but it seems that reform theology in particular has uh, either A, a dim view of philosophy for some reason, some some segments of it, not all of it, so definitely not a, an overall assessment. But those in the Reformed adjacent sphere seem to have some sort of dim view of it. And then second, it seems that uh, true philosophers that also want to adhere to Reformed theology are almost like unicorns. So trying to go out there and find someone who wants to have a reformed account of free will, who wants to have a reformed account of other doctrines is almost impossible to find in true philosophical areas. Do you have any sense for why that might be the case? Um, 
Well, there's a boring answer to that. And the boring answer is just the numbers game, that it just generally is really difficult to get into a decent philosophy program, no matter where you're coming from, Christian, non-Christian, reform, non-reform. So um, there's there's a very, very tiny number um, of people who fit that criteria for that reason. Um, because if, if you take any sort of demographic, it's going to be uh, who are the philosophers in demographic X, you know, doing work on Y? Uh, that number is going to be really small, all things considered. Um, so there's that. I Yeah. Um, maybe I can say I agree. I think that among reformed circles generally, there is a there's too big of a of a constituency that looks at philosophy with a degree of skepticism that wants to automatically, um, you know, encourage others to steer clear from it or something. You know, I don't know how to characterize that sort of thing. Dim view of philosophy is, is right. Um, why is it the case? I, well, I think, there are good reasons and maybe not so good reasons. The good reasons um, where I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree that we should just totally stay away from it, but I understand the motivations, the good motivations, let's say, are that you do see cases where solid uh, reformed Christians get into chasing their tail in philosophy and don't come out of it in the way that they should. Um, they either end up abandoning the faith, abandoning the faith, or having weird views that really consistently place them outside the pale. Um, because the field, you know, the the for some people, that lure of coming across as very intelligent is just way too strong for some people. It's one of my advisors said there is, I'm going to get this wrong, but there is, there are fields of study that have like a genius perception. Mathematics is one of them. So if you talk to someone who is like, well, yeah, I got my master's in mathematics or I majored in math, or I have a PhD in mathematics, you automatically see them as sort of this genius, like whole other level. And look, it is really hard to do that sort of thing. So there is something to the degree of difficulty. The reason I'm bringing up that is because philosophy is included in there. Um, there is this sort of genius perception that, hey, if you can do hardcore, high-octane philosophy, look, you're in this other category. Oftentimes, I mean, there's some absolutely one, – one person I can think of uh, in philosophy who is a prophet a and I won't mention. I don't think I'll ever meet a person who is in one sense smarter than this person. So there are some extremely intelligent people in philosophy and in mathematics, but um, that can sometimes, uh, for certain personalities, be this stumbling block where you want to continually uh, give yourself that drug as coming across to a more popular audience as being extremely intelligent. And um, so the other thing that I would say in terms of reform circles is, unfortunately, I see that that happens often as well, is that if there is a pastor or a theologian who picks up a few terms from Aristotle and then trots that out to an audience who 
really isn't familiar with Aristotle or philosophy or those sorts of terms, you can come across as very intelligent. You're sort of a cut above. Like these other pastors, right? They're just sort of in English language. They're, they're talking Bible and, and theology. This guy is talking Aristotle. So, I mean, wow, you know, how, how impressive is that? And so for, for certain audiences, that can just come across as um, you're, you're very knowledgeable. Um, you're thinking about things very deeply. So in other words, I'll end with this. It, in some contexts, it doesn't take much for you to be sort of platformed and given a status and position of really deep thinker with only a couple concepts, terms, figures within philosophy that's maybe 0.0001% of the discipline as a whole. Yeah, that, that's good. Good advice. So thanks, number one, for talking to us about all this stuff. This has been a lot of fun. And second of all, for those of you guys who are listening, well, I got to remind you of two things. Number one, Jared's on Twitter, so you can go find him there. <laughs> it's just Jared Oliphant. You'll find him. Go follow him. Second, it does. you do have a website, right? Uh, what I think, jaredoliphant.com or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's basically right. I mean, it doesn't have much. It has what I've taught and uh, those sorts of things. But yeah, I'm trying. You know, I did. I, I got a sub stack up and running. I'm terrible at that sort of thing. I'll just mention that right now. I just sort of write every once in a while. But I don't know. We'll see how regular I am with that. Cool. Well, well you should go keep up with his work because I think he's doing really interesting things. He's got the right dispositions. And as I've mentioned, we need more reformed philosophers out there. So all of us have to stick together and promote each other's work. So thanks, Jared, for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Everybody who's been listening, as you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in.